Hi, I'm your host, Connie Aline, and thank you for tuning in to the Fly Behind the Wall. This podcast was really created to change the narrative about the realities of life in U.S. prisons and jails. Mass incarceration virtually disseminates entire communities and destroys the sheer economic fabric and social networks that exist. Our prisons are no longer just cinder block and steel bars, but human warehouses. My goal is to return the systematic disenfranchisement and destruction of American lives back to public conversation. So welcome to the Fly Behind the Wall, and thank you so much for joining me again. Today, we're going to explore, I'm going to say, mental health behind the wall. Um, There's mounds of research available on like the prevalence of mental health disorders among prisoners, you know. Uh, The one thing that is indisputable is that correctional facilities in the United States are considered the largest provider of mental health services. I mean, despite any court mandates for access to adequate health care in prisons, inmate access to health and mental health care is not consistent throughout our correctional system nationwide. Unfortunately, for many mentally ill inmates, far too often the prison means solitary confinement or neglect or even death. You know, uh, treatment decisions are oftentimes based on just available resources. And within these budgetary constraints that most systems are working under, it really is doing a quick triage and treating the most severely and compromised unstable inmates sometimes just doing the minimum to stabilize them. But you know what? The criminal justice system today houses more than 2.3 million people and it costs U.S. taxpayers billions of dollars each year. So let's just dive into what mental health care behind the wall looks like. Mental health behind the wall is serious business. I mean, there's strong relationships between mental health and criminal behavior. You know, when offenders come into the system, sometimes they come in with a diagnosis and a treatment history. I mean, but they're not, you know, great historians. You know, a great deal of effort is put into gathering their treatment history, getting their medical records, And, you know, oftentimes we wait to receive that information, but we preliminarily provide, you know, diagnose and get them on in treatment. You know, we want to get them on meds as soon as possible, if that's appropriate, or set them up for whichever treatment modality would be appropriate for them. So, you know, I just want people to understand that there is a process, right? So when an offender comes into the facility, you know, that person is seen by a mental health professional 
well, I'm going to say the facilities that I have worked in because I understand that mental health is a challenge in many facilities. So I, I just want to preface this statement with that. Um, so many offenders that have come into the systems that I have worked in um, are seen by a mental health provider upon intake. And an, an assessment is done. And based on the results of that assessment, uh, treatment will be started. Whatever would be clinically appropriate at the time for their level of care is what would be started. You know, a psychiatrist would be consulted if there was medication needs. You know, nursing would be seen, have them seen if there were any um, comorbidity issues or if there was a medical diagnosis that also needed to be addressed. And quite honestly, their housing is dependent upon their mental health score. So depending on, you know, how independent or how mentally compromised they may be, where they're housed matters. Um, some offenders are known to mental health and they can be immediately placed in the mental health unit. Other inmates aren't known and so they, they go through the assessment process. But ultimately, the level of coordination that's needed is significant for this high-risk population. Um, I think the other thing that I just want to highlight as we kind of talk about mental health behind the wall is just that there's been a significant increase in the mental health population that really correlates to closures of mental health institutions or treatment facilities in the community. And granted, these budgetary constraints that keep coming up aren't just limited to the prison. They are, lim they are extended to community resources that are scarce. You know, clearly, you know, the prison isn't the most appropriate or effective way to treat mental illness at the end of the day. But we have no say in who's admitted. You know, we may be able to petition the court if we find that someone... Um, is not like clearly not in the right place, but usually there's a process with that as well. You know, if this person has a conservator, if the person has an attorney that, you know, can be contacted and there can be some collaboration between mental health in the facility and the attorney to kind of get this person placed in a more appropriate setting to meet their mental health needs, that can happen, but those are very rare instances you know, um, we've, I mean, had the opportunity, you know, to engage with courts. And, you know, it's always a good thing when we can get them into the right place. But our reality is that once they come into the setting, we have an obligation to stabilize that offender and keep them as stable as possible. And that's through whatever treatment modalities we have available in the facility. Um, unfortunately, what we do see throughout the system is that there are severely mentally ill offenders who are in cells instead of hospital wards. And it's always a question, is this adequate mental health care for this person? I mean, this is what we have available and it's probably the best way for us to keep them safe, uh, but it's an issue. Um, I mean, there are systematic and gross deficiencies in staffing that denies mentally ill offenders of adequate treatment and care. And that's throughout the nation. 
there are staffing issues. I mean, chronic understaffing issues in all areas. And I mean, quite frankly, the correctional environment isn't one that people are just dying to go work in, right? No one really wants to have to face the threat of violence every day. So getting qualified, quality uh, providers who want to come into this environment can have its challenges. In addition to having to deal with sort of the tiers and what you can offer from a salary perspective, how do we compete with outside providers when you have this system of salary ranges that could be offered at this tier and that tier? And however your state is broken down, there isn't a lot of flexibility to offer a psychiatrist pay that is comparable to what he or she would be receiving in the community. And I would say that for the psychologists, for the um, clinical social workers, uh, you name it, any mental health professional who comes into this environment really just wants to be in this environment and has a passion for working with this population um, as opposed to really being in it for the money. But at the end of the day, it is the compensation that keeps people engaged and really doing their best to, for the, the population, you know? Um, so other things that I think we should probably talk about as we go through this mental health behind the wall are some of the, you know, significant complexities of caring for this population that walks in the door with disproportionate mental health problems. You know, prisons have literally turned into warehouses for mentally ill people. I mean, so let's let's be real, right? What we have access to are, you know, we have the psychiatrists, we have psychologists, we have, you know, social workers, uh, we have, you know, there are counselors that, you know, the prison, most uh, prison populations have counselors who work for the prison, but their role isn't necessarily mental health. But from our perspective, we have safe cells. Um, we have some therapeutic interventions. But, you know, there's a lot of limitations to what we can provide. Um, so, I mean, let's face it. The mentally ill population comes in, they usually, if they were already in treatment, you know, it's questionable whether or not they were compliant with the treatment regimen that they should have been following when they were in the community. And so we're in this space of trying to figure out what their true needs are and how to get those needs met. Um, we don't want someone to decompensate, right? We don't want someone to be suicidal, but our reality is that we're dealing with suicidality, we're dealing with decompensation, we're dealing with substance abuse in the mix of that. So it's like you've got this toxic mix of an inherently violent environment, you have a mental illness, you have some medical compromise, you have limited resources, financial and human, um, and 
you're tasked with trying to keep this population stable. Now, of the 2.3 million Americans that are incarcerated in United States jails and prisons, approximately 1.2 million of them are living with a mental illness. So how does the system practically handle that volume of mental health needs, right? Um, so there's some important things I think that has to, I wanna highlight that the system is challenged with, right? So aside from staffing, you know, there's challenges with policies, right? You need policies and procedures that kind of help support what these mental health needs are, right? So if there's a particular diagnostic test that would need to be done in order for you to properly diagnose someone, then there should be a policy in place that sort of drives that process, that supports that process, that says in order for you to treat this particular thing or in order for you to appropriately diagnose, here are the diagnostic tools and diagnostic testing that has to be done and we will provide those things. But when there aren't you know, policies that spell these things out, it puts the provider in a position to have to try to advocate for these things for which someone could simply say, no, we don't have that. Or no, that's not the standard of care that we follow. Um, and I mean, yes, the financial resources are limited, you know, for that. And so I think what that also translates to is that there may be a drug that's more effective, for example, right? So the use of pharmacotherapy in conjunction with counseling and self-help groups to treat mental health conditions in this setting has been largely accepted as like a standard in like correction in the correctional community. However, many of these medications are so expensive and therefore they're not offered widely within the institutions like it's finding that balance right you know how you you know what treatment would be best but you don't have the resources to actually provide the treatment that they should be getting you know so individuals with untreated mental health conditions we know they are at high risk for correctional rehabilitation treatment failure, right? So you come into the prison, you've been untreated, or if you go into a jail and you're not there long enough because when you're in jail, in jail that's like pre-trial, you know, um, you've not been sentenced. So maybe that process for you being assessed and being connected to mental health services hasn't happened yet, right? Within maybe the first couple of days that you were there. And it's quite easy for that person to fall through the cracks and not get the treatment that they're needed, that they need, right? And so what happens when you don't get that treatment, that leads to future recidivism once you're released, right? Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot to consider when we're talking about mental health in prison, right? But I think there's something that we just don't want to ignore, which is the correctional environment simply is not inherently conducive for optimal mental health treatment. And I mean, I think for anybody, me, you, 
the person next door, right? Life in prison and the ability to adjust is difficult for someone who's not mentally compromised, much less someone who is, right? And then you add crowded living quarters, you add lack of privacy, and you add increased victimization, right? So I come in, I'm mentally compromised. I don't really know what's what. Someone befriends me, or at least I think they're my friend, and then I become like their victim for whatever. Whatever it is they see fit to be getting me involved in, and I don't know no better, right? I'm unable to make the decision of someone rational or someone who is reasonable or someone who is not mentally compromised, right? Um, So what can we do about this? You know, there are certain things that we need, right? Which is like real diversion, right? How do these people even end up in prison? You know, there are mental health treatment courts. There are drug treatment courts who work in collaboration with treatment providers to help individuals with mental health and substance abuse problems. But here's the problem. Unfortunately, for the offender to evenly, even like end up in that diversion option, like they have to plead guilty to a crime and then be subject to incarceration in order to access the treatment available through the treatment courts. You know, so there's clearly been some systematic, some systemic changes in access to mental health with closures of treatment facilities. You know, treatments such as like, I think it's the assertive community treatment and multi-systemic therapy already have shown strong evidence of reducing days of incarceration, incarceration, you know, but it's clear investing in mental health and substance use services for all people will reduce the likelihood that individuals will ever face incarceration in their lifetime. But those are investments that we have to make. You've got to be able to identify this is a problem. The solution is not incarceration, but what are the alternatives to incarceration? How do we make sure we still keep the public safe? We keep this person safe from injury to themselves or others. How do we find that balance, you know? And so I think the other thing, you know, we have to look at is, so what does incarceration really do, right? So you get the person off the street, they're now being treated in a facility. It's questionable whether or not the, you know, the care is adequate. It's questionable whether or not the provider is a quality provider, so which calls to question the treatment, right? Um, but then even once they come out, right? Say it's time for them to come out and they want to transition. Like, how do we continue that care if we've already talked about closures of mental health facilities in the community, right? So even if there are community providers, I'm sure that those community providers are at capacity. How do we build in the ability to treat these folks that are coming out of prison? And just understand that while they're in prison, you've got, so the mental health providers, right? But then you've got custody, right? Custody who, one, like they're now being charged with learning how to detect that there's some sort of mental health decompensation going on 
and that this isn't just some sort of uh, behavioral or disciplinary problem that's happening with this particular inmate. This inmate isn't just violating the rules. This inmate shouldn't just be placed in solitary confinement. But so, all right, I'm just going to back up for a second. In order for you to become a correction officer, all you need is a high school diploma. We are saying that the level of mental health care that these offenders are coming in with are so complex that even those who are professionally qualified to treat them are challenged with treating them. How are we reasonably expecting for correction officers who the minimum requirement for their job is a high school diploma for them to now be able to make a quote unquote mental health assessment of an inmate, right? So that in of itself is a problem. Um, and it's unfortunate, right? But the, the offenders are in the units with them and I get it. It's important that they understand what's happening and that you know the mentally ill population isn't being unfairly treated just because they have a disorder. So I get it. Um, I just don't think it's effective personally. So what happens when you get incarcerated too, right? You could have been in treatment. You could have been compliant. But if you had any insurance, you've lost that. You've lost any insurance benefits, any services. And all this translates to is a loss of access to prescriptions, right? I mean, prescribed meds, you need an insurance card to go to the pharmacy to pick it up. And when you're already compromised, your ability to go out and advocate for yourself. So now we're saying you're mentally compromised, you're on medication that we hope you're compliant with, you also have some sort of mental, some medical compromise happening. And we want you to now go out and advocate for yourself to get your insurance, to get you back stable on medication, to find a provider who can take your insurance, right? Because now we're telling you go out in the marketplace and find somebody who can help you. And then in the meantime, please don't self-medicate because that's only going to exacerbate your mental health condition, right? So we know that when they don't have supports and they don't have certain things in place, continuity of care isn't going to happen and they will be at risk of recidivism and at risk for self-medicating or at risk of not self-medicating because they know enough to know that they shouldn't, but now they're at risk for self-harm. They're at risk for suicide because now they're hearing voices. Now the things that the medication was taking care of or addressing are now resurfacing and they don't know what to do. So one thing is clear is that, you know, support is needed to assist them as they try to transition back into the community, right? Someone has to kind of stand in the gap and facilitate that transition from correctional mental health care to community care. But I mean, I guess the bigger question for me is, can this be prevented? You know, um, and I feel like it can be, you know, there are so many things that we know are sort of like the precursor for incarceration, right? So, you know, if we could identify early on and support like signs and symptoms 
that we see in students, right? That, that would be one way for us to sort of intervene on this fast track to incarceration, right? So we know for a fact that students with disabilities are more than twice as likely to be suspended. We know that students who are suspended or expelled are three times as likely to be involved with the juvenile justice system within that year or within the next year. We also know that students who've been involved with the juvenile justice system are more likely to end up in the criminal justice system. And once you've been in juvenile justice system, we know that high school dropout rates skyrocket, right? And, and we also know that high school dropout rates are a major factor that puts individuals at risk for incarceration. So how about we find a way to intervene early on because we know all of this stuff already. How about we invest in tools that actually help providers to provide support? I'm not saying that teachers in school now have to also now become mental health professionals, but when you see certain signs and symptoms, I think that's a parent-teacher discussion, no? Is that not, I mean, they're, nowadays they're school psychologists. Perhaps that's the teacher going to the psychologist and saying, say, hey, listen, I'm seeing these things with this particular student. And this is not the teacher having to reach out to the parent to say something. Maybe that's where the first conversation happens. The teacher reaches out to the parent to say, hey, X, Y, or Z is something I identify with your child. The parent has whatever time to either intervene or not, right? The teacher then can go to the psychologist to say, hey, listen, I've seen, I've seen these signs and symptoms with this student. I've reached out to the parent. This has been the response or lack of response, right? At which point, the, the school psychologist is the professional. She can reach, he or she can reach out to the parent to intervene or to, you know, at least educate the parent. And while I get it, even parents, you know, they're their education or like their exposure, their willingness to accept certain things are limited, you know, so I get it. I'm not saying that these things will happen without challenge. All I'm saying is that if there is a process in place so that there is early intervention, perhaps we can prevent these kids going straight from juvenile justice to criminal involvement, right? Criminal justice involvement. I mean, I think one thing to note here that I don't want to like gloss over is that the mental health crisis is especially pronounced among women in prison. You know, one study by the Bureau of Justice Statistics found that 75% of women incarcerated in jails and prisons had a mental illness as opposed to 55% of men, right? So having worked in a women's facility I mean, I know that the the issues that women have come in with have been enormous, right? So from different levels of trauma and abuse, you know, separation from children, you know, domestic violence, you know, prostitution, all these different traumas in their lives. And I'm not saying they're the only ones who've had the traumas, but their ability to cope and manage just all the moving parts 
is very different from the men men's ability to cope and manage. The experience of incarceration for women is completely different for the experience of incarceration for men. Um, and, and that's just factual. And, and this particular you know discussion is not about men and women and how they experience prison, but for the sake of the mental health crisis, there is a lot of support out there that shows statistically women come into the facilities with higher rates of mental illness than men do. So I've had some very sobering experiences reading one too many suicide notes, right? And I mean, one thing I can say is that there are always different triggers, right? Whether it's a broken relationship, whether there's some family issues going on, there's uninvolved family, you know, inmates are feeling invisible or they're feeling forgotten, you know, their children no longer want anything to do with them, they've been alienated, or simply there's times where you're reading these notes and they'd start hearing voices and they never told the provider that they were hearing voices or, you know, they couldn't turn the voices off or there was a change in their medication and there were some new symptoms that came up that they never told anyone about or they told their cellmate about, but they didn't tell anyone else about. I mean, there's notes talking about just how they were being victimized and being extorted. And, you know, I informed this person or I told that person, but, you know, this whole offender culture of snitching is very real. And so people aren't snitching. They aren't just telling their story, you know? And so for me, it really is one of those things that says mental health is such a serious, serious issue. And I think that, you know, we have to be better at being able to acknowledge that this isn't an area where we can really compromise on. You know, we will continue to see high rates of suicide if we don't do what we need to do in order to stabilize these inmates. And when it's time for them to go home, help them to transition into, you know, some sort of community treatment that keeps them stable. You know, and we know stability isn't just based on community treatment, right? Stability means having social connections in the community that they can go back to, having a place, a roof over their head, being able to eat from day to day, having like a job, like there has to be something that they're able to reconnect to once they go back out, because then they're more motivated to stay compliant with treatment. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my reconnection with my family. I don't want to disappoint my family. I don't want to lose my connection with my children. You know, there's so much riding on their stability. You know, if you're mentally unstable in the work environment, there aren't many employers that are going to keep you around. Now, you may not get necessarily terminated because of it, but if in fact your mental health decompensation leads to your inability to actually perform the job you were hired for, they now have grounds to terminate, right? I hired this person to do this thing, this thing they're unable to achieve, and so I don't have to keep them employed. I need to find someone who can do the job they were hired for. So I say all that to say that at the end of the day, it is very challenging 
to treat mental illness in facilities. The best of the best providers who are very attentive, who are in tune with community standards, who are doing their best to advocate for the best treatment um, options available for their patients, like at the end of the day, they too are limited by the resources, by you know what the organization is or isn't willing to support. So um, as a society, we have a great deal to gain from better treatment of offenders while incarcerated. And I am hoping that we are able to do the right thing by these offenders and advocate where need be, but also provide the necessary resources to keep them stable. As a society, we have a great deal to gain from better treatment of offenders while incarcerated as they are a captive audience and they oftentimes are more compliant with treatment because there's nothing else for them to do. I mean, not to say that, you know, the offender culture isn't distracting. They just can't refuse treatment without being held accountable by their treatment providers or by custody who just don't want them decompensating in their units. Mental illness affects every aspect of the criminal justice system, from policing to the courts to prisons and beyond. People with mental illness are among the most disadvantaged members of our society. And when they end up in the criminal justice system, they tend to fear worse than others. I mean, they lose their, they, they are less likely to be able to make bail. They're more likely to face longer sentences. They're more likely to end up in solitary confinement. They're less likely to make parole. And unfortunately, they are more likely to commit suicide. I don't really want to end on that note, but I think that's where we do need to end. The mentally ill population is a special population and they can't advocate for themselves. It is on us to do the best we can to help them to help them be more self-sufficient and to stand on their own feet and take care of themselves. So I do hope that my reflections and insights have helped to broaden your understanding of correctional life from an employee perspective and from the inmate perspective. No matter what David and Goliath situation you find yourself in, remember the words of Rosa Parks. You must never be fearful about what you are doing when it is right. I do hope that I've given you enough to continue 
a healthy conversation about our incarcerated citizens. Thank you so much for listening as I continue to make my own slice of the world a little better. You have just listened to The Fly Behind the Wall, now available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, and other listening platforms. Be sure to subscribe, share, and write a review. Join me next time Behind the Wall.